0: And welcome, horror hounds, to another exciting episode of Cadaver Dog's podcast. Today, we have an absolute treat with you with two of the main horror directors of all of horror cinema. Together, they're going to clash as we dissect two insane films, both of which were directed in the early 90s. I'm Rob
1: Basercha.
2: I'm Devin Shepard.
1: And I'm David B. Jacobs. And we are Cadaver Dogs.
2: Woo! Woo!
1: Happy Halloween, everybody.
2: Do you know what you're going to be for Halloween?
1: I'm, I'm always a wizard. <laughs> Rob, the point of a Halloween costume to be something different than you are in real life. Well, the costume gets oh. better every year, you know? <laughs> so our first film has
0: to deal with the way we view reality and some other really cool kind of like slimy, gross things. Telling us about that is David B. Jacobs.
1: Reality is not what it used to be. John Trent, an insurance claims investigator, is hired to track down a prominent horror novelist by the name of Sutter Kane, a loose combination of Stephen King and H.P. Lovecraft, mostly Lovecraft. Trent, played by Sam Neill, suspects the whole disappearance as a publicity stunt and discovers a hidden map on the covers of Kane's work. Teamed with Linda Stiles, who works for the publisher and is a huge fan of Sutter Kane, Trent follows this map to Hobbs End, a town from the books which is supposed to be fictional. But then it seems there are a lot of things that should be fictional and are apparently not, like, you know, all the demons running around. It turns out that Kane has always been influenced by unseen elder beings which have been using his writings as a way of entering the corporeal world and redesigning reality. His latest book is In the Mouth of Manus, starring John Trent himself. Seems even our protagonist did not exist before Cain wrote him. And now, as more people read the book, the world will descend further into madness as the Old Ones claim their throne. And for those who don't read books, there's a movie is directed by John Carpenter. It's actually the second time we've covered a John Carpenter movie, so I think he's the first director we've covered twice.
2: Yeah, get it. I mean, fitting, very. Fitting. Yeah,
1: very fitting. <laughs> it would be Carpenter. We're going to cover him again, don't worry. We oh, we yeah. are. We are.
2: <laughs> okay, so I have to admit, I don't want to like toot my own horn or sound like I'm bragging here, but like usually like psycho thesis movies, I can like understand pretty well and like I get what they're going for. I was so confused <laughs> during this whole movie, and I just got like so angry because I was like, I should be able to understand this. Why don't I get what's going on? And I got so mad. Okay, so I guess my first question is who is actually real in this world? If this is like an entire world that is written by Sutter Kane, like, is anyone real? Like, did you guys get this film? <laughs>
0: That is an interesting question, because like for instance, Styles right. was written out of the story.
2: How could he write her out if she like causes things to happen? Then don't things not happen because she wasn't actually there and was written out? And then like if she's the publisher or like the editor of his book, like who actually edits his book? And like is Sutter Kane real?
0: Hmm, because at this point, reality is just non linear, right? It's shifting around based on what the old ones do with Sutter Kane. I mean, if you ask me, I would say that his name's John, right? John, uh, John is not real because Sutter Kane told him I wrote you in, so John didn't exist before the story existed. But I think Charlton Heston did, and I think also his original publisher did. But Styles, well, actually, I think Styles existed till he wrote her out. I think John's the only one that didn't exist. I agree uh, with you.
1: It's interesting because I think the only character who we actually get a firm answer on is john trent himself i don't think anyone else in the movie has a clear answer as to whether or not they existed before sutter kane wrote them the very the very first scene in the movie the opening credits is literally the typewriter going it's him writing the book which sets everything up i love that that's the opening because literally nothing can happen until he writes it
2: yeah oh that's good
1: it's also weird how so many characters
0: are aware of the way they're written and they start commenting on it towards the end. Especially in like Hobbs end when that like father character shoots himself in the face. Yeah. Which by the way, come on,
1: why did they show his head explode?
2: No, it was so much more effective without it, I oh. think.
1: It is. It's, it is is more effective without it. He, he, he shoots himself and as he does, he says, I have to. He wrote me this way. What's especially interesting is that Setter Kane would have also written him saying... I have to he wrote me this way.
2: Right. Yeah. Because Sutter <laughs> Kane is his own character in his own book. And I'm like curious if Sutter Kane has to write himself as his own character, how does does he get a control what like that's so that's confusing to me.
0: Right. So <laughs> Sutter Kane isn't writing every single detail that happens in the world because it's some sort of prose. So there's gotta be some dialogue that's being said that isn't written down and that's some true. things that are happening, like that aren't right. described so i wonder if the guy if he actually wrote down he wrote me this way but it makes sense because the story is a meta story about a guy writing a story that changes the world and he's being told by this and then they make a movie of it so it's actually cool because we're actually seeing that the next iteration like we are seeing the movie that they haven't i, I guess at the end of the movie we we, we he watches the movie in the movie <laughs> that part's pretty it's cool So great i um, love it It is complicated. Wow. This is like the burrito inside the burrito wrapped around a taco. (laughs) (laughs) It's
2: a crunch wrap supreme. (laughs)
1: Christopher Nolan eats your heart out.
2: If Sutter Kane isn't writing everything, then there are scenes where he focuses in the book. There are scenes where he focuses not on John Trent, supposedly. Mm -hmm. Which means that during those scenes that Sutter Kane does not write, John Trent might actually have some free will.
0: Hmm. I think that's a good point. So, to me, it seems like the characters have free will until uh, a plot point comes up, and then they have to do a certain thing. Mm-hmm. So you know how he like doesn't want to submit the manuscript and spread the word of Sutter Kane, but then when he comes to, which supposedly would be like the parts that aren't written when he has free will, uh, he realizes he did all that stuff
1: unbeknownst to him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A lot happens that he was like, not even aware of. He, he, he kind of, his brain kind of skips a few months. Yeah. yeah. And, I mean, it's an interesting question about everyone in the movie because a, a lot of them, like, Linda doesn't have free will at a certain point for sure, or possibly even before that. There's uh the, the paper boys. He's just riding past the town, and he gets sort of sucked into the vortex of it.
2: Oh my god, that was the creepiest thing and no. I love it so much. I was like that's so crazy that he just has to ride this one path over and over again and he literally gets older and older and then starts again.
0: Yeah, yeah. I actually I didn't realize that he was stuck in a time loop. It's kind of neat cuz even Sutter Kane himself is like devoid of free will cuz the end like he turns into his own book. He becomes
1: paper and his face rips. Right. So, yeah, I wanted to ask about that. Like, does Kane himself even have free will? I mean, he says that he realizes at a certain point that every he's not even in control of what he's writing, that it's he's only putting down what they tell him to write.
0: And I guess they, the mouthpiece of they is that total recall lookalike baby thing on his back. Yeah. Like, what the fuck was that? I think something similar happens with like Pikmin who, uh, she has like her husband chained to her leg and then she turns into an octopus, uh, (laughs) which is actually pretty cool. So Pickman is uh, a direct reference to Pickman's model, which is a Lovecraft story in which a painter paints these gruesome, uh, portraits of, uh, creatures and whatnot that everyone is like, wow, this guy has a crazy imagination. And sorry, spoiler alert at the end of this seven page, enormous story. Um, his, his friend finds a photograph of one of the monsters and it turned out that he was painting actual portraits of things that were real, not fantasies. Mm. That's why in the movie, uh, Sam Neill asks the woman if she painted the pictures on the wall. I think this is important because I think that in one of the stories she had maybe painted the paintings on the wall, but not in this one. So I think that while all these stories are intermingling, there's also rewrites happening so the plot point of the kids taking her as a mother might have just been written out because styles was written out Mm. so there is this like melding of fiction and reality into just madness so i
1: think there's always going to be a certain kind of structure that doesn't make sense in this movie yeah it's widely experimental starts off not that experimental i mean it has the flash forward to him uh screaming I'm not insane which is of course how every Lovecraft story opens and then it goes back and it's it's literally just a film noir for the first 30 minutes yeah it is the basic plot of every film noir
2: which is why I knew that he was fake when the movie started really they do it they do it so well I'm like oh he's one of Sutter Kane's characters like I immediately knew because the (laughs) way that they write him and the way that he acts and his theme music you're like he's too much of a character he's not a real person yet
1: oh wow good catch he he feels like uh Jack Nicholson's character from Chinatown
2: yeah yeah
1: that's kind of his whole deal like that even that opening scene with him where he's in his office you have all the Venetian blinds and he is yeah. talking to someone who uh, is trying to run a scam but has cheated on his wife so she ratted him out and I'm like that that's like it's just the opening scene to Chinatown uh with anamorphic lens and the the side lighting the strong contrasty lighting it's it's a film
0: which i think at times they pull off really well i think there's a lot of parts of this movie that don't look that great to me and some of the special effects i think they're too willing to show it to you at times Mm -hmm. um which is odd because you know we covered the thing at the beginning of this podcast and i thought that's a great movie looking movie and almost all the prosthetic work looks amazing in that and it's mostly backlit in this movie they kind of show it to you a little bit more
2: Mm. to me the worst part was when we saw it's not an animatronic, of what i thought it was it was a miniature of mrs pickman chopping up her husband and i was like (laughs) oh this isn't as good as the thing which was how many years before this at least a decade
0: 82 so 12 years before no yeah the thing looks way better and i think the monsters chasing him at the end might look worse
2: yeah but the monsters are dope i do like the monsters
1: (laughs) and like that's kind of the deal with this movie like a lot of it looks like not great but it's cool i think that's kind of intentional to some extent as well i mean like the the paper boy when he becomes an old man like doesn't look like realistic age makeup at all They also could have literally just gotten an old man and they said, no, we're going to age him with makeup and it's going to look kind of uncanny valley. And that that's the point. It's not supposed to Mm. be perfect makeup all the time. It's supposed to look like, what the fuck is this? What is going on? And that's why I think it actually works really well. I think there might even be a little bit of that
0: with the dialogue, because like at times the dialogue seems wrong. But then you hear later that he rewrote the scene and you're like, oh, Maybe in the beginning, when he's talking to Styles and Charlton Heston, that really awkward scene uh, when she's holding the mug and things—that that whole scene is so awkward. And then he's like <laughs> hitting on her, and it's like it doesn't really work with his character. It's strange.
2: That's why I feel like Styles is real in that moment because she isn't like falling for his like cool character stuff that is obviously written in the book, right? Like him smoking a cigarette and having to put it out. She's like, mm, mm. fuck no. Like, and she doesn't seem like a femme fatale in like this noir sense maybe a little bit, but she but she also like just doesn't call him out on his bullshit. It almost feels I don't know. It almost feels like she's real.
0: Yeah, she doesn't she doesn't read as a femme fatale at all, right? Yeah. Well, when she becomes a monster, yeah, but Yeah, but that's not really a femme fatale. That's her yeah. like that's more of a damsel.
2: We don't see it happen, but she does like go after in pursuit of Sutter Kane and like she makes the choice to like go into the church and
0: yeah, yeah. No, yeah. she's she's doing her job, but it's not the typical I'm going to it's not the typical two-faced femme fatale of like I've double crossed you and broken your heart. Now you got to go after me, but really I'm dangerous. And on this fair. other person you don't know about, he he calls her on her con from the get-go. It's kind of the opposite
1: of a femme fatale because at the end it turns out she's better than he initially gave her credit for.
2: That's fair. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: That's kind of a femme fatale trope as well, though. I mean, again, Chinatown, that's Faye Dunaway's character. Uh, she, I don't want to spoil Chinatown. You should watch Chinatown. <laughs>
2: yeah, don't, don't
0: spoil Chinatown. But yeah, maybe you're you Jesus maybe Christ, you're right. if you
2: haven't watched Chinatown by now, just like pause this podcast, <laughs> go watch this fucking movie and then come back and finish this whole entire episode and then three more before. It's not you... horror,
1: but it will chill you to your bones.
0: So, So David, you like the makeup throughout the movie, right? Yeah. What you going to say? Okay. And I think Devin's more on my path where at times it's good, at times it's not.
2: Yeah, but I kind of like David's interpretation of it now. <laughs> like, it, it maybe it's almost purposeful. Because it is to me, it's weird to, like, see John Carpenter, who's, like, so well-known for, like, knowing how to handle these spe- special effects and make them look fucking awesome on screen to put something up that looks less than great. But also, like... I don't know. It's a cool interpretation. We don't know what happened on set. It kind of works. It's kind of
0: It's one of those weird experimental movies where like it's genre bending. There's a lot of different things happening. You don't really know what you're getting. It's not scary per se.
1: It's pretty fucking scary, man. You think so? Yeah. Oh
2: my God. The most terrifying line to me, I had to write it down. I think style says it. Humans will be a myth. They're like, one day humankind is just going to be a bedtime story.
1: It's just like existential horror, I think. that, yeah. it, I, I mean, the entire premise of the movie is that reality is flexible. The, the way we think of the universe is that there is a truth. There is a base concept that is what is real that we are observing. Mm-hmm. But according to this movie, that's not true. According to this movie, reality is strictly what we perceive it to be. And if we all started perceiving something else... Then that would become reality. Yeah. And there's also this this complete distinct lack of control that, you know, we have like the freedom
0: to influence our own lives and shift the course of reality in the world and history and stuff. And this is completely taking that out of our hand to where we could just be written out of existence with a torn page. Right? Mm -hmm. Yep. So it is is completely existential and it's cosmic because there are creatures coming from space or wherever to influence Sutter Kane's. He's like the kid in that Twilight Zone episode who can think things and they happen.
2: Yeah. You
0: know? yeah. 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 It's it's like
1: that. That's a cosmic horror or existential horror story. I also kind of connected to Roko's Basilisk. I, I know you're familiar with this, Rob Devin. Have you heard yeah. of this?
2: No, but also please explain it for our listeners.
1: Great. Little content warning. Um, this might kill you, but it won't. <laughs> but just be aware.
2: Oh, I know, I know, I know what you're talking about. Okay, yeah, yeah, but please explain it.
1: Roko's Basilisk is a thought experiment regarding a future artificial intelligence that will someday exist, which is omnipotent and will punish everyone who knew about it and did not help bring it into existence. So, by now being made aware of Roko's Basilisk by me... You are either doomed to be punished by this thing when it exists, or you must help it come into creation. I mean, the guy who proposed this was actually arguing that we definitely should not bring this thing into creation, but that's beside the point.
2: Oh, uh, I don't know. To, to me... Okay, what I was going to go off of before, and like, I think this kind of fits into it too, is like, that is religion?
0: Yeah, a little kind bit, of, yeah.
2: Right? Like, I mean... I don't want to offend anybody, but like, I may just offend fucking people here. But, you know, a lot of some of religious backstory or how other people confuse other people's religions as well is just like, it is a belief that comes to be, not necessarily that is, because not all these religions can be at the same time. So one of them has to be not necessarily real, right? And so like... But because we believe in it, then it comes into existence. Like you were saying for the Baskalist, David, and then it becomes like the truth of our world. And I think that ties in with what you were saying earlier, Rob. And what this movie says too. It's like the reality that we live in is the one that we choose to believe in.
1: Yeah, Yeah, that's a good comparison. The Baskalist has also been compared to Pascal's Wager, uh, which is an old argument that you should choose to believe in God because if you believe in god and god isn't real it it doesn't really hurt you that much but if you Mm -hmm. don't believe in god and god is real then you're going to be doomed to burn hell and there are a million logical fallacies with this argument but it it the comparison has been made between basilisk and pascal's wager
0: yeah pascal's Wager is very common uh, among people who yeah if you talk to them about religion they'll kind of bring it up without calling it pascal's wager but it's a terrible I've definitely spoken to people uh well i not necessarily um but it is super similar i mean to the basilisk in that we we have this design system that you're supposed to go towards and uh if you don't then you're punished severely for it and uh even if you were to read like the uh <laughs> we're always talking about genesis um in the beginning, God spoke the word, and that, that was. So mm-hmm. it's always starting from the word and it's becoming. Um, and that, that's not only in in uh, Catholicism or, or in, in Judaism. There, there's other religions where it usually starts with the word. Uh, I think in some of the Hindu religions, it's similar. Like, "Om" is the first word spoken that mm-hmm. created things. It always starts with a word and a thought. And a lot of the ideas, chanting in general or praying, any kinds of chants, is bringing things into existence through breath, through
1: breath.
2: I love that. And and one of the lines in this film is, Cain uh, says this. I think, therefore, you are.
1: Yeah. <laughs> he he also compares himself to God. He says that uh, his work has sold more copies than the Bible, and then at some point he outright calls his book in the mouth of madness the new Bible.
2: Which, like, yeah, that's exactly what it is in the context of the movie, right?
1: Yeah. But it's yeah, also they're... ballsy because he's trying to compare himself to God, but he's being controlled by these other beings. So right. he's really he's really just a patsy. Mm. Well, I mean, he's like the mouthpiece of God.
2: Yeah. He's the mouth yeah. of madness? <laughs> oh!
0: oh. <laughs> <laughs> that was That was pretty damn good.
2: Actually, off of that... As we've been talking, I've been thinking about this one thing. Um, earlier, you guys were talking about whether or not Sutter Kane is actually real and if he has free will. And you just mentioned it, David, um, because these things are basically telling him what to do. What if he's not real? And I mean, like, because all all the, all the mm. quotes from the book are actual legit quotes from H.P. Lovecraft. And like yeah. he obviously, like you said, is is resembling, and all these stories are resembling, uh, Stephen King and H.P. Lovecraft. So what if he is just... What am I saying here? Well, we know Stephen King exists in this world because he's mentioned. Because Sutter King outsells Stephen King. So what if H.P. Lovecraft is... Or what if Sutter King is just like, a vessel through which to pump out these stories. I don't know really what I'm saying, but there's like some, there's something here no, where I feel like I, I he's hear you. fake.
1: Yeah. I'm I like, hear you. Yeah. That basically he is a creation of the elder gods in order to spread their word is what you're saying essentially, right?
2: Right. But that he's not actually real and that he actually just like respews words that have already been said, but like H.P. Lovecraft, but with the blessing from the old ones.
0: Right, but but since the story in the mouth of madness is about Sutter Kane writing this book, we don't even really know if Sutter Kane is the real writer,
2: right? Right. So maybe Stephen Ooh. King or H. P. Lovecraft wrote it,
1: or <laughs> or Michael DeLuca wrote it. <laughs> exactly. Right. Yeah, the, the screenwriter wrote it. And okay, it's but a he meta didn't actually write it that.
2: because he also adapted it from Lovecraft
0: yeah sort of there's this like ongoing old myth that lovecraft and his mythos was him actually contacting the old gods and they were the ones telling him to write this stuff
2: stop yeah. that's creepy as hell
0: yeah yeah and you know no one even that's wanted cool. to publish his shit when he was writing for the most part
2: Ah, oh. all right guys uh before we move on to our second film though i want to take a break right here to hear a word from our sponsor
1: Devil is in the details. Trim your nails before reading this one. The terrifying visuals might have you clawing at your eyes. The author of Ped, Flanagan, and Buds, James Longmore, just re-released one of his finest horror novels, Tenebrian. Amateur filmmakers break into an abandoned school to perform and film an authentic black mass, inadvertently invoking a demon. The malevolent demon of darkness requires particular circumstances and sacrifices to rend a fissure between the worlds and set free its brethren. It has manipulated humans for centuries to put things into place, and the movie makers are the unfortunate final pieces of its nefarious puzzle. The filmmakers will attempt to return to Tenebrian to the pit of Hades as it hunts them all down one by one for inclusion in its hellish gateway. You can find the novel on Amazon or check for a link in the description of this episode. Now, back to the show.
0: Now we're back from our brief break for our second film of the night, which also has to do with stories in reality within stories and their meta and there's a lot of stuff going on. But this is another franchise, not quite as old as the Lovecraft one, but probably even more well known. This is Devin Shepard giving you guys the plot synopsis.
2: After five successful Nightmare on Elm Street movies, New Line Cinema, yes the same studio that did Mouth of Madness, decides to kill Freddy Krueger and end the franchise once and for all. Heather Langenkamp is welcoming this end. She can finally leave Nancy and Freddy behind to focus on spending time with her special effects artist husband and their son, but Freddy isn't done with her yet. Mysterious events begin to plague her, threatening phone calls, cataclysmic earthquakes, and nightmares. Oh, those nightmares. Heather dreams Freddie is back, and he's after her and her family. She's determined to get to the bottom of this, asking for help from her fellow Elm Street actors Robert Englund and John Saxon, and producers Sarah Richer and Bob Shea. But only one person has the answer. Real life Wes Craven. Wes has recently been compelled to write a new Elm Street script in which Freddy is in the form of an ancient evil that is looking to break into the real world. This is Wes Craven's new nightmare. Yeah! Oh, this is the shit David lives for.
1: (laughs) Freddy's my favorite. So, to start us off, I've got a little question for you. Do you read Sutter Kane? (laughs) (laughs) In seriousness, though, uh, why do you think that this had to be a freddy movie the plot feels like it could have worked with a lot of different things but it was specifically freddy krueger aside from the fact that it's wes craven writing it and freddy is his character what purpose both in terms of the plot and in terms of ness, do you think that it freddy serves specifically
2: so was freddy krueger like the ultimate horror monster at this time like was he above all else just like as big as they portray him in this movie because like we, we we go to the new line offices in this movie and he's on every single wall bob Shay has like all these dolls like it's just like it seems like this crazy crazy fandom is that like what it actually was in 94
0: i don't i don't think so not exactly uh i mean there's always freddie craze but the uh, franchise was kind of on a decline And this was a way to kind of spark it back up. So I think Mm -hmm. it is kind of exaggerated. But I mean,
1: Freddy Krueger, everyone knows who he is. Like you show the claw to like little kids, they know what that is. Right. It's not exaggerated though, because the entire point in the movie is that he is on the decline. And that's why the demon is able to be coming into the real world. That if Freddy was still at the height of his popularity, the demon wouldn't be able to do that.
2: Well, I think that's exactly the answer then, David, for me is like, it's because that's kind of exactly what was happening with Freddy. And and Wes Craven is kind of exploring, like, what are the implications of Freddy leaving or coming out of the zeitgeist?
0: I, I like to think of it in terms of it's kind of like the it monster. This cosmic horror that comes out of space, this alien entity that latches on to things you're afraid of. But in this case, it latches on to a, a scary script and the monster, Freddy, mm. Goes in your dream and shows you what you're afraid of, and that's how it gets its power. But I think, as David will tell you, it's kind of the reverse of it, or even Mouth of Madness, in that the story traps it, not the other yeah. way around. You know, rather than spreading the word, the word contains it. But uh, does it have to be Freddy? Um, no, but. I mean, I don't know, it's a weird question. Yeah, I mean, could it have worked if it was Jason instead? mm Not really. Not as well, because then, like, the dream aspect wouldn't work as well. You know, you can't show what you're afraid of. If it's just Jason, It's like, okay, now it's just it just walks around, it breathes. Like, the whole idea of Freddy is that he's not really in reality. And the only way to eliminate it at the end of the movie is always pulling him into the reality. You got to get a hold of this thing. And the way you get a hold of this thing... Rather than literally grabbing it like she does in the first film. In this one, it's Wes Craven grabbing it with his pen or his typewriter.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of see this as Wes Craven's uh, philosophy of horror in general, yes. that this is like his thesis statement pretty much. These are a few quotes of Craven. He says, You don't enter the theater and pay your money to be afraid, you enter the theater and pay your money. To have the fears that are already in you when you go into a theater dealt with and put into a narrative. Mm. Stories and narratives are one of the most powerful things in humanity. They're devices with, for dealing with the chaotic danger of existence. Uh, it's like boot camp for the psych, and real life human beings are packaged in the flimsiest of packages, threatened by real and sometimes horrifying dangers, events like Columbine but the narrative form puts these fears to a manageable series of events that gives us a way of thinking rationally about our fears. Horror films don't create fear, they release it. Like all of these quotes, there are more of them. Throughout his entire career, he kept talking about horror as this vehicle for confronting the things that terrify us and approaching them in a safe environment to be able to control them. And that's literally what happens in the movie.
2: And that's why I love him so much. I think my entire horror philosophy is based on exactly everything that Wes Craven has taught me. <laughs>
1: Aside from his earliest movies, uh, the protagonist always survives. They they always win. They always are able to defeat the evil.
2: I will correct that. And like they don't just like survive. They fucking like fight back. And like I think Nancy is like the perfect. Well, before before Sydney Prescott, but uh, Nancy yeah. is like the perfect example of how west Craven writes these protagonists and how they fight back and i mean he even says this in in new nightmare he's like you know heather you were always you gave nancy her power like she could defeat freddie because you gave her her power and you're the only one that can defeat freddie now which is just like such an empowering and emotional moment um it's so cool to to watch like horror actresses like usually get the bad end of the stick and they're like, oh, you just scream around with your top off half the time. But like Heather Langenkamp, like in this film and I mean in everything else before, but especially in this film because she plays herself is like, no, like I'm a mom, but I'm not just a mom. Like I'm a wife, but I'm not just a wife. Like I'm an actress and I have all these like, like it shows her full entire life and it shows everything that she's like going through. And it's just like, oh, just so good to see on screen.
0: Yeah, yeah. She definitely takes control of the situation and doesn't need no man.
2: (laughs) Literally, yeah.
1: I saw recently an interview with uh, Barbara Crampton where she was talking about the word scream queen. And she says she doesn't really like that term. That kind of demotes what she's doing and what many other actors are doing into just screaming and being there and makes it seem like it's an easy thing. And she's like, no, we like are bringing life to these characters we're doing a lot exactly. more than just screaming. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, especially if you think of screaming as literally. So to go back to your idea of like kind
0: of how these stories are a way of us dealing with our own fears. There's a a pretty recent um philosophy book called Stranger's Gods and Monsters by Richard Kearney who I believe is I think he's an Irish philosopher. I think he's writing via Ireland. And he talks a lot about this kind of he calls it a hermeneutic approach, but it's it's a way of like reading stories narratively and how horror movies take these fears that we have troubles um, describing and, and gives us a way of directly describing them, being able to view them and deal with them. And that's why the best horror movies usually have to do with some sort of fear we're currently dealing with, whether it's in reaction to some sort of uh, global event, Um, such as a pandemic a terrorist attack a war like in uh, one of our recent episodes under the shadow so i I think wes craning is tapping into that idea of it's very healthy to describe these kinds of fears of ours and put them in a place such as cinema or or a story
2: thousand percent yeah which
0: is cool because uh if we are going to compare it to the other movie it is kind of the opposite right yeah i think so yeah
2: actually that's a really good point yeah
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I actually, I David, I think is I, I got to give him credit. He's the one who decided to order these movies, uh, from the pessimistic to the more optimistic. <laughs> <laughs>
2: so, in how these horrors are reflected, how real life horrors are reflected in horror cinema, what do you guys see as the real life horrors that are in New Nightmare?
0: So, there's this idea that you're trading your job for your life, right? That your mm-hmm. career kind of takes over for you um there's this other fear of like kind of aging out of what you're meant to be you know uh there's this other fear of being stuck in your career they're almost all career
1: oriented it's also also just literally i mean her husband dies half an hour into the movie it's also just a fear of being alone it's a a fear of not knowing how to raise your child that he he might have some sort of disorder i mean the movie talks a lot about mental illness as well um mm-hmm. although in this movie the mental illness does not make anyone dangerous and it's also i mean they're they're not mentally ill freddie is real um but it's a, a distrust of of doctors trying to take their child away from them well it's also it's kind of a fear of horror movies in a lot of ways well i i don't think it's necessarily a fear of doctors i think well
0: i'd heard this on youtube that she was a stand-in for the mpaa kind of yeah. like, <laughs> that is my definitely
2: God. a west craven thing yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah yeah right um
0: what i really enjoyed about this film uh being in the film industry myself and you two can relate to this yeah is that it's critical of the long hours that we yeah because her mm-hmm. husband dies falling asleep at the wheel which is a real life concern for people working in the film industry and from yes. what i've heard it's it's a bigger concern abroad where they work even crazier hours
1: there, there's a movement right now that's gaining not that much traction unfortunately to uh, try to limit that and get better rest breaks but I mean it's it's not doesn't seem to be going anywhere. Uh, we'll see what happens uh, that, that it was heavily discussed to the beginning a pandemic and then everyone kind of just forgot about it. Um, but there's a line in the movie when you know Heather calls her husband, she's freaking out because of everything that's happening. And, uh, and the strange calls that she's getting from a toxic fan, um, who she thinks is a toxic fan. And he says, uh, okay, I'm on my way home. He's like, he's the good husband. He's going to come right there. He's not leaving her to deal with this on her own. He believes her. Um, he says, I'm coming right home. I'll be there in three hours. Yeah. I just laugh hysterically every time at that line because it's so fucking real. Yeah. yeah, yeah,
0: especially in L.A. where they are, you know. It's like yeah. there, you got to drive somewhere. It's like, all right, I'll be there in
1: five, six hours. See you <laughs> yeah, soon. It's like, okay. And this is yeah. on top of working 12-hour days every day. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah.
2: no surprise that he falls asleep at the wheel, no. which is just terrifying. And-
0: 12 hours if you're lucky because most crew members have to get there
1: earlier and unpack and they have to load out at the end of the day so it's usually a 13 hour day he might have been having shorter days at that point because he wasn't actually shooting he was prepping yeah he also left midday supposedly like he didn't work a full day because he left early but he's working this every day five days a week but then like even then your weekends are never really weekends when you're working in film like I don't know how the fuck we're able to record a podcast while working in film. It makes no sense. It's absurd. I know. I, I got to be on set tomorrow. Oh, my God.
2: No, it's, it's really interesting. But, David, you said one thing that Nancy – not Nancy. Sorry. Wow, I did it. Um, Heather thinks that she has a toxic – like a stalker. Yeah. Um, I didn't – I don't think she does. Like, I don't think she does think that. Like, yes, um, it's been, it was established that she had a stalker who would call – but at this point that the calls start happening, she's already having nightmares and she already thinks that something else is happening. And it's actually everyone else telling her, oh, no, nothing's happening. It's it's just your stalker. Oh, it's your stalker. And like literally everyone's telling her like they're not listening to her and they're telling her it's just the stalker.
1: Which is a common theme throughout the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise that no one ever believes the heroes that they're being stalked by freddie in their dreams mm-hmm. yeah but come on that's so fantastical but i also I, I think in this one she i think she there is a little while before she actually starts thinking like maybe something is actually going on that is supernatural because she because it's realistic supernatural yeah, yeah. <laughs> no yeah. one would think that yeah but yeah she's not
2: in a movie <laughs> like this isn't a movie in this world
1: it's so like, why, why would she think a character in one of her movies is coming to life? That's fucking absurd. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah, great. Yeah, it, it, it kind of mixes
0: that idea of like the deranged fan is usually the one who gets who mixes the reality with the fiction. But in this case, it's the actress, which is cool. So like, you know, actresses, they'll, they'll have these, uh, or, or actors, they'll have these deranged fans who envision they have some sort of relationship that they've just fabricated in their own mind. And then they start stalking them and things, right? You always hear that story of uh, the famous person comes home and they see someone they don't know in their house who pretends to be their spouse or girlfriend. You're like, what the fuck? But in this one, it's her who is like, the division is on her end. It's not on the fans' end.
1: I mean, fans who aren't necessarily trying to be creepy often come off as creepy throughout the movie. Like even there's her driver in the one of the first scenes starts like saying oh you're that girl in the movie oh yeah and freddie was chasing you i love all this like creepy stuff that happened to you and it comes off really bizarre like he doesn't mean to freak her out but he he's clearly like tapping into what she's going through with a stalker calling her and pretending to be freddie yeah,
0: yeah yeah i like how that's so creepy when the tongue comes through the phone and licks it's her in the so face. good it's so, it's which such of a course great is a callback to the original movie yeah, yeah it is it's also <laughs> this idea of like how close your fans want to get with you it, yeah. I think it taps into that too I really love how this movie makes use of the claw and I felt like the claw was kind of missing in some of the later sequels and this brings it back to where it front and center this is about Freddy Krueger and what is Freddy Krueger Freddy Krueger is his five fingered claw yeah, which they they
1: also redesigned. Did you guys like the redesign of the claw? I do actually. I did, yeah. Um, I mean, I think the effects in this movie, similar to the last one, which Sinstring cuts, actually the same effects team.
2: <laughs> oh, that's awesome. <laughs> that's in funny.
1: the same year. In the same year. Yeah.
2: Crazy. Those guys
1: are super prolific. I mean, uh, one of them, Robert Kurtzman, went on to direct Wishmaster. The other one, Greg Nicotero. Yeah is like i think the showrunner the showrunner just directs a lot of episodes of the shutter creep show series mm. like all these guys are super prolific and have done a lot of stuff but uh i i will say i think that the Freddy mask in this movie looks the fakest of all the Freddy masks throughout the movies but i also again think that that's like kind of works with it because he's not a burn victim it's not THE Freddy Krueger. It is a demon that is shape-shifting to look like Freddy Krueger. It's not yeah. literally Burns anymore.
2: Yeah, yeah. there were points where I was like, is that Robert or not? Like, I actually, like, had to question <laughs> it sometimes. Yeah.
1: Well, it's actually Freddy Krueger. To credit have uh, it's Freddy Krueger as himself. Love that. That's
2: awesome.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I really don't like the mask in this one. I, I like the claw a lot. The claw looks
2: cool. Mm-hmm.
1: So the reason the claw, I think, really works is that Going off that same idea, it's no longer a glove. It is just part of his hand now.
2: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's like then the whole redesign of Freddy is like he's more muscular and more veiny, and he's more like coming to be. Um, it reminds me a little bit of of Hellraiser when Frank is yeah. like being formed.
0: <laughs> I really like it when the little kid tapes the dives to his hand. I think that's an awesome scene.
2: That kid was so fucking scary. It scared the crap out of me. I thought it was like... He was like the scariest wh- kid I've ever seen in a horror movie.
1: <laughs> uh, same kid from Pet Cemetery, I just found out.
2: Fuck yeah. Yeah.
1: He was
0: also <laughs> in Kindergarten Cop. Boys have a penis. Girls have a vagina. Okay. You I haven't that part. I, I don't, I don't, wow. I'm not familiar with that wow. movie. You don't oh, know fun. Kindergarten Cop? Yeah. Oh, it's the, it's the famous scene. Who's your daddy and what does he do? And the kid stands up and he goes boys have a penis and girls have a vagina and the whole class starts
2: laughing oh no oh my god There are... okay robert england fucking snack
0: <laughs> it's a snack
1: <laughs> what
2: are <laughs> like, you so attracted to him <laughs> really yeah <laughs>
1: Wow, okay. I mean, Kurt Russell, I get, but okay, okay, yeah. (laughs) Wait, wait, wait.
0: England in or out of makeup? That's what I want to know.
2: Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) He has to have those blue little sunglasses that he has in almost every scene of this movie. (laughs) That is so funny.
0: (laughs) I I did not expect you to say that at all. That's awesome. Um. Okay, what do you guys think are the main points of comparison between these two?
1: Well, obviously, they're both about someone writing something that's coming to life. And we talked a bit about the concept of free will in In *A Mouth of Madness. But I think that applies to New Nightmare as well.
0: Yeah. For instance, the kid like climbs to the top of the playground because it was in the script. And at the end of the movie, she's reading the script as he asks, like, what is that? Is that a story? But she
1: does change the line. She adds the word, yeah, to a line. Wait, <laughs> yeah. really? Uh-huh. It's like the one of the last lines in the movie. She picks up the script. The kid says, oh, is that a story? And in the script, it says his line. Then it says her line is, it's a story. But she says, yeah, it's a story.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. And then she starts reading the script, and they cut before they get to the part where she reads her, her husband dying.
2: <laughs> we should start <laughs> having a segment where it's... Uh super script supervisor and david comes in and is like (laughs) here's all the things that were incorrect and inconsistent with these movies
1: (laughs) well with this one though they had to have noticed that at least when they were editing probably even sooner and they had to have been like oh no yeah let's have her change the line and i don't know if they thought about what that actually means for the story but it does imply that the script itself does not have to be verbatim um which is also partly like that's an ad lib that happens on every single movie
2: yeah but i also i i don't think it's like Wes Craven isn't writing what happens and controls what happens he's seeing these in his dream yeah and then writes down what happens so it's not like there's no control there's only yeah
1: it does raise that question it's not clear i think i mean he writes some scenes before they happen yeah
0: but also he captures the entity by writing the script so it's not yes. the entity telling him the story it's not like in the mouth of madness the
1: entity does not want him to write the script
0: no 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 the anthony yeah exactly the entity wants to leave and run around as freddy krueger as something else and cause havoc
2: so what is giving Wes these dreams that causes him to write
0: i think it's the entity leaving he has some sort of like link to it because it was his story that had
1: captured it it might be in the same way that the entity has to go after heather um it also has to have that same link to west and it's implied that it has a link to to robert england as well we don't see exactly what happens to him he might have just ran out of town to get away from it he might have been killed by it we're not given an answer to that well i'm i'm just glad they
0: did do the route where robert england turns into freddie krueger no of course not that would have been ridiculous do you think wes and carpenter like got together and were like we're making meta movies or it was like a contest between them or was it just nah. accidental that they both made meta movies about horror movies at the same year at the same time i think it's no. accidental yeah you don't think it was like and with the same effects team do you think it's like oh this is kind of like the other movie wes just did yeah. so it's like no 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 not at all his is about his is
1: about a script mine's a book Not even close. (laughs) You're like, well, it says right here, there's a movie.
2: (laughs) No, I feel like it has to say something about what's going on in the 90s at the time, and especially in horror movies, because we just like, Mm. we're coming out of the 80s, where horror kind of had this free reign to be a little wilder, a little crazier, a lot more gory. And then all of a sudden, we see a lot more pressure from the MPAA um, about what comes out of the theaters, video games, a lot more people becoming like prim and proper growing
1: up. What? this is before columbine did that did that happen in the early 90s with the MPA, uh doubling down
0: yeah i think so that was all about the uh, like marilyn manson stuff nine Snails, and
2: it's at least the start of it yeah we're seeing like a lot of people crunch down on music um specifically like you're saying yeah and so like we're seeing this this pushback against media and so there has to be, and I mean Wes Craven is definitely a leader in this, but like this has to be a response to that in some sort of way. And I think, well, mo- multiple times throughout New Nightmare too, Wes is like there are hints and push and pushbacks, which I love so much against just like how people react to horror movies in general. Um, one specifically that comes to mind is when Heather is doing the on-screen interview, and the interviewer is like, "Do you let your son watch these horror movies?" And she's like, um, no, but it's not because they're not scary. Or I mean, she doesn't actually get to finish her sentence because that scene is so well done and she's out of control there because he's b- very being very pushy. But, um, yeah, I think that there's a lot of hints about that throughout this film in particular.
0: OK, religious symbols in these movies. Both these films have religious symbols. In particular, I'm thinking of the cross. So in the beginning of In the Mouth of Madness, John is drawing crosses all over his um padded cell and the uh heather's child in a new nightmare climbs to the top of the uh playground and makes the form of a cross before he falls off and she does like a fucking nfl dive and catches him which is really cool yeah uh, w- what do you guys what do you guys think both these movies are saying about religion and I- is it a similar thing
1: or is it different i actually think it's pretty different i mean craven was raised uh, i think catholic um, and very strictly so he like he, had, he didn't really watch horror movies as a kid he's talked about how religion gave him a lot of this fear that he brings into his movies that he he kind of attributes it with a lot of his fucked up mind um but freddie is if you haven't seen all the movies uh, freddie's mother is actually a nun who was raped she is often used as a force to battle against him so, Freddy kind of works in the same way a Vampire, where if you hold a cross up to him, it will help to hurt him. He's also literally a demon in this movie. There, there's a problem with that, though, David, because I think Wes Craven wasn't using
0: any of the movies in between the first and this one. So, was his mother a nun in the first movie? No, not established. No. Mm. So, I, I don't think the nun even
1: exists in this world, per se.
2: Interesting. It might
1: but there is still religious symbols and i think that it can all connect there are there are but i think the other
0: movies are more pro religious in that way like the nun is a way of combating yeah um, for sure Kruger. i don't know yeah. if if religion is really viewed in a very positive light in this rendition
2: no and i, I think it goes back to what i was saying earlier about the the fiction and reality thing and about you know something that obviously uh, Math and Madness explores and i actually have a quote from craven about That scene that you mentioned in particular, Rob, um, because he says that is one of the most moving scenes that he's done, especially in the film. Um, And he says, quote, it's one of the more profound moments in humanity, you know, when one's faith is contradicted by the events that happen. And I mean, describing that scene a little more, Mm -hmm. it's the boy reaching towards heaven to join his father. And what does he say after he falls? It's like, God didn't want me. trying to
1: reach God. Oh, yeah. God didn't want me. Yeah. Say
2: that? And was so sad. But um it's it's him kind of realizing that like him him having that moment that maybe God doesn't exist.
1: Oh, that's interesting.
2: And something that he believed in isn't necessarily real, which ties into believing in Freddy, whether or not he's real, believing in Sutter Kane, et cetera, et cetera, whether or not, you know, the reality is what we make of it, essentially.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's kind of neat because in both these movies, like a malevolent cosmic force has more control over reality than what what we might think is god and you can kind of view both movies as almost atheistic
1: i don't think in the mouth of madness is strictly atheistic but i think that the way that the plot works the reason that he's drawing crosses to try and combat it i think is that before uh, the book In the Mouth of manna sells and transforms reality into the Sutter Kane narrative. Uh, the Bible was the big thing that everyone believes in. And per the rules of this movie, that means that previously the Bible would have been true.
2: Mm, interesting.
1: Oh, oh wow, that's kind of cool. Yeah. I think the movie is saying that reality is what we make of it. So, yeah, if everyone believes in religion, then religion would become true. Right. Is an argument right. that the movie is sta- saying. It doesn't necessarily say that's a good thing, but it is saying that. <laughs> so
0: so if everyone were to just read the Bible and become religious overnight, you would beat Sutter Kane.
1: But the Bible also has some extremely brutal and violent imagery in it as well. And I think that both movies kind of acknowledge that religion is a bit of horror itself.
2: Yeah. yeah. I mean, A New Nightmare even, like, acknowledges that you know these fairy tales that we tell our kids growing up are horrific and terrible and it's like hey yeah stop ratting on fucking horror movies like you guys have been telling these stories for literally hundreds of years thousands of years (laughs) like uh yeah
1: i'm so stupid for taking like five viewings of this movie or whatever before i realized that uh they kill freddie the same way they kill the witch and hansel and gretel yeah
2: <laughs> wow yeah they yeah, yeah. have the bread crumbs of the pills and yeah
1: and when she's reading him hansel and gretel earlier in the movie she start when she gets into the more disturbing imagery she wants to stop and he's like no keep going and it's this yeah. moment of her being like almost creeped out by her son and he wants to keep reading this horrifying stuff but then they get to the next part and it's like oh then they go home and their father showers them with kisses and it's like oh okay well i guess we got through the <laughs> horror stuff and now it's just well, Nice. Yeah.
2: yeah, again, like, stop, hey, all these people, stop judging horror movies by these, like, specific moments of gore, and, like, maybe you should actually look at the movie as a whole, like we do on this podcast every single time. It's just like, <laughs> what are we actually talking about here, and how are we actually discussing the world at large through the lens of horror? Like, there's a, I, I, there's not necessarily a happy ending, but there's an ending that there's more to the story than these horrific moments essentially
1: so what does that mean for in the mouth of madness which literally does the exact opposite
2: yeah it does the exact opposite it's kind of like (laughs) the most fucking pessimistic thing and i'm like freaked out
1: (laughs)
0: yeah yeah well i I mean in the mouth of madness is just kind of like a true just horror apocalyptic story that there are beings outside of our control and they can just come in directly and like start squishing us like ants you know
1: (laughs) but not right away because when you dig more into the lore of in the mouth of madness and start to look at it more closely um there seems to be a theme so Sutter Kane's books are always influencing people it's always been churning people crazy which the publishing company just writes off as like oh no 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 those were unstable people don't worry about that (laughs) yeah no. Um. But then it gets worse and worse with each book until this new one they're able to really take hold. And it seems like they needed to cement themselves. I don't know that they're all powerful because they need to get people to really believe it. And that's why they pick this crappy pulp paperback hack as their writer because that's what's popular. That's what's going to sell. That's what people are going to read.
0: Yeah, but I mean, John does mention that he's much better than he thought he would be. Um, kind of like a Stephen King type symbol, you know. You think Stephen King's just writing these like horror stories, but actually, he's very, very talented.
1: Yeah, he's super talented. As was H.P. Lovecraft, despite the uh, racism. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Okay. yeah there's yeah. there's a lot of racism. <laughs> yeah. A <laughs> sure, uh, yeah. little disclaimer: H.P. Yeah. Lovecraft is kind of a racist, just just so you know. Um, I think we're all probably gonna have the same answer to this question, but these two movies seem to present very different ideas of what effects horror can have which one do you guys think is correct or do you think that they both have interesting points well yeah
0: i mean like obviously i'm mean, gonna lean more towards west craven's idea that you know horror is uh, a way of dealing with problems and, and showing it um i mean i don't think that's the only reason we write horror i think part of it is just like we like being scared and i think that's healthy uh John Carpenter, I don't think, is saying in reality that horror is bad and it can affect us in negative ways. I think it's just that's that's the horrific idea. Oh, what if these things we love are actually bad for us?
2: Yeah, I totally agree with everything Rob said. I said it before and I'll say it again, like Wes Craven's views on horror are like my Bible or my (laughs) in the mouth of (laughs) madness.
1: Oh my. Yeah, I mean I I I also I I think Wes Craven has it totally right. Um, but I don't think that there's no value in what In the Mouth of Madness is saying either. Um, I mean, we haven't touched on too much so that also is talking largely about toxic fandom as well. That it is the fans who take it too far that are bringing about the apocalypse and whatnot. Well, I, I actually think that's one of the central points of In the Mouth of Madness.
0: And I think you can view the entire movie in that way. That all these bad things are happening because fans can't differentiate reality from fiction and i mean that is a real problem like if we go back to us talking about stalkers and things people do fabricate these crazy relationships the one that yeah. comes to mind is the person who i think he tried to send an acid bomb to bjork
1: there was also the guy who shot reagan in order to impress jody foster that's that's another
0: one yeah these people who fabricate these absurd ideas in their heads and uh you know you should read these things as for what they are which is fiction and like they're they're a lens for viewing the the real world but they're not a real world in and of themselves
2: which is like kind of actually applying to more of in the mouth of madness but kind of also says a lot about what um wes craven is saying about like the restrictions and censorship and the pressure on horror films in the 90s
0: yeah, because it takes away from our ability to talk about the real world if you're oppressing and censoring what we can say. Yeah. like we, we have to dare to offend or we're not speaking truthfully. And one of the things about horror films is because they're extreme and they're kind of offensive, they're able to talk truthfully Yeah, about things that actually scare you. Because things that scare you are not going to be things that are not offensive. You're not going to be... <laughs> a f- I mean, unless, unless the
1: censorship's what's scary, which to me might be, Mm. yeah i mean if in the mouth of madness is commenting on this uh extreme mpa double a doubling down on censorship in the early 90s then yeah it makes sense that the ultimate takeaway of the movie is people not aren't able to differentiate fiction from reality and Guys, this movie is a fucking work of fiction. The, lit- the literal <laughs> ending of the movie, he doesn't just go and watch the movie, he goes in with a giant box of popcorn, which, like, there's no one else in the theater. Where'd he get this popcorn? Love it. How's their I popcorn love it. there popcorn <laughs> there?
0: <laughs> I, I love how he's the actor in the movie too. It's like he's watching himself. I'm like, well,
1: how did you have time to no act to the movie sense. if you were I know I know it, and that it's great? not starring Sam Neil. It should have been starring Sam Neil anyway.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That would right, have been that's, great. That's another point that I was like, fuck this, I'm so confused.
0: So I think this is a good time to enter into my favorite part of the show, which is the bone review section where we review each film on a one through four bone scale with half bones in between. Starting us off this week is David B. Jacobs.
1: Man, I fucking love these movies. Um... <laughs> <laughs> Both of these movies are among the very best from, like, the two greatest horror directors that there are, which is, of course, John Carpenter and Wes Craven. In the Mouth of Madness, it's, it, it's flawed. Sometimes it feels a bit hokey. There are some threads that don't really lean anywhere, but, like, I, I just I don't care because it, it's so brilliant and unique and original and just complete balls to the walls and it is no fear of doing whatever the fuck it wants to do and she's like no no no, you'll figure it out you'll be fine <laughs> and I, I i love surrealist horror so much i mean i'm giving that three and a half bones wow. and i'm also going to give new nightmare three and a half bones wow damn it's one of the best Freddy movies Freddy is my favorite of the slasher uh characters and that movie is also flawed sometimes the dialogue's kind of hokey Um, the, the Freddy makeup is not as good. The CG effects are early 90s CG. But again, I just don't care. The, the, my one significant problem is that I think the, the climax is a little weak, that they could have done more with that. It, it feels like once she goes into the world, that's like the emotional arcs have been completed. And I'm just like, great, we're good now. And then, oh, now we just, now we just need to actually fight him. Okay. (laughs) But I don't mind that much. It's still like a fun scene. Um, and... These movies are so I love these so much and I'll just watch them over and over again.
2: <laughs> um okay, starting with it math of madness. I said at the top. I was just like I <laughs> there are so many things that confuse me and I think it's not for a lack of them being there. It's just like they don't necessarily make logical sense. Um <laughs> and I kind of want them to a little bit more or at least like get some sort of just like guide cuz then it feels like a little sloppy. Of a of a script, and so that that docs it for me. I I love Sam Neill. Uh, it was so cool to see him in this role. Uh, the music was really fun. The sets were fucking awesome, and like the whole concept. Well, like because I have gone through thirty years of life, I've seen this concept many many a time. But like there was something about this that like made it fresh and new and exciting. So it was pretty cool. And there were a lot of like really, really awesome directorial choices. But, uh, yeah, just the logic of it all really pissed me off. Um, so I'm going to give it two and a half bones.
1: Ooh, um, it's better than I was expecting.
2: Yeah, I was going to give two bones. But then after this conversation with you guys, I was like, oh, you know what? Actually, that's kind of smart. And we'll get a, another half.
1: It's, watching the movie i was just like oh devon's gonna hate this movie so i'm glad that you at least kind of <laughs> like it yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad you know
2: my taste i'm glad you know my taste uh so new, new nightmare i i mean i just i love i, I love west craven i love west craven and this was just like the most west craveny nightmare that i had watched and it was like super fun um i heather's character was just like so well written i feel like i've said all of this throughout the episode but um yeah i think it's really strong the slow it was a slow start for me um it took a while to get there it kind of felt like a little bit of a i don't know drama at first and then i agree with david like the ending kind of took a while but the middle really fucking rocked um so i'm gonna give it three bones
0: okay so i'll also start with In the mouth of madness uh, I'm almost exactly like Devin. I really was going to come in here and give it two Bones because I, I'd seen it before and I remembered liking it more. But on, upon thinking about it, it does have a lot of interesting things. And my main problem with it is it, I just don't find it scary at all. Like there's no part of this movie that like scares me. But it's kind of fun and it has a really neat ending. It's like at the end of the movie when he's laughing in the movie theater, I, that like I, I left the movie being glad I watched it again. Um, so the ending really sells it for me two and a half bones i think it's good i think it's a good movie and i think you should watch it it might not be for everybody but that surrealist art house meta genre bending horror thing it's kind of good and it's weird similarly uh a new nightmare the first time i'd seen it i really didn't like it very much but on this time i liked it a whole lot more um i don't i don't know what i don't like freddy's makeup Uh, It has some good kills, though. It has some pretty bad special effects. Some pretty good special effects. That fire at the end looks awful. (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to give it 2.5. Both these movies get 2.5 bones from me. I think they're good movies. I don't think they're great, but they're interesting. So they're definitely worth seeing. And depending on how interesting you find that meta horror thing, you might give it a higher rating than me.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I think also part of it, a lot of it is also just that I love surrealist horror so much yeah um, yeah i mean i've talked before about the things that scare me and obviously especially in the mouth of man this just hits all those points
2: definitely a taste
1: i'm not huge on meta anything <laughs> uh, anyway
0: that's it for this week guys thank you for enjoying another episode of cadaver dogs i'm rob
1: Bacercha, and i'll see you next time do you want to play skin the cat One, two cadaver dogs coming for you three four better listen to some more
2: five six don't press skip
0: nine ten never seven, listening eight. again seven oh, eight sorry i can't fucking count <laughs> i think we got it happy
2: halloween <laughs> happy halloween